Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Beautiful people, I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. Nube Brown here at KPOO San Francisco 89.5, the host of Prison Focus Radio. So last week we were able to give the just beautiful kind of relief news that Sundiata Akoli is now home with his family um, after uh, almost 50 years and uh, but he is home. He's able to be with his grandchildren, his people. So we are going to continue with this amazing article that he wrote in the San Francisco Bayview um, back in 1995 and published in the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper in 2019, A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle. Sundiata Akoli's life, his brilliance, um, his um, elder statesmanship um, is so needed 
now. It is such a blessing to have him out, um, but also to be able to share um, his work and, and his his life um, <clears throat> Um, unfortunately, mostly while he was still imprisoned. But uh, this this chronicling that we have, this archives of his incredible work, um, especially in New African prison struggle, um, is incredibly valuable. So we are going to continue reading that uh, with the backdrop of him being home and how important it is for us to continue to uh, help to free our political prisoners, um, our politicized prisoners, and those elders uh, who have been, who have always been our, our freedom fighters and uh, <clears throat> who were snatched from our communities, really leaving us uh, bereft of that incredible knowledge, that incredible wisdom, um, and the reason why we really need them home. So, um, yes, we are going to continue with the brief hist a brief history of the new African prison struggle by Sundiata Akoli. Here we go. All right, so we ended with the attacks increasing on revolutionaries in the 60s and early 70s, and then moved right into the new African independence movement, that was exploding in the prisons. And I'm going to just read a caption here uh, from of a, of a photo of what was taking place in Attica, which still, Attica still inspires the prison movement for the strength of unity of the prisoners who demanded respect in negotiations and modeled the peace they yearned for over the days they controlled the prison, even showing compassion to their guard hostages. And... From there, we did go into the COINTELPRO attacks. So we are going to start there, where in 1969, COINTELPRO launched its main attack on the Black Liberation Movement in earnest. It began with the mass arrest of Lumumba Shakur and the New York Panther 21, which, of course, Sundiata was a part of. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And then we got into the... Um, the FBI raid, the COINTELPRO attack on um, the offices in um, in LA, but uh, Geronimo Zizaga, decorated Vietnam vet, had earlier fortified the office to withstand an assault, and no Panthers were seriously injured. However, repercussions from the outcome eventually drove him underground. The widespread attacks left Panthers dead all across the country. Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, Bunchy Carter, John Huggins, John Savage, Walter Torre Pope, Bobby Hutton, Sylvester Bell, Frank Captain Franco Diggs, Fred Bennett, James Carr, Larry Robeson, Serge, uh, Spurgeon Jake Winters, Alex Rackley, Arthur Morris, Steve Bartholomew, Robert Lawrence, Tommy Lewis, Nathaniel Clark, Welton Armistead, Sidney Miller, Sterling Jones, Babatunde Omowali, Samuel Napier, Harold Russell, and Robert Webb, among others. In the three years after J. Edgar Hoover's infamous COINTELPRO memorandum, dated August 25, 1967, 31 members of the BPP were killed. 22, uh, sorry, nearly a thousand were arrested and key leaders were sent to jail. Others were driven underground. Still others, like BPP Field Marshal Donald D.C. Cox, were driven into exile overseas. Also in 1969, Clarence 13X, founder of the Five Percenters, was mysteriously murdered in the elevator of a Harlem Project building. His killer was never discovered, and his adherents suspect government complicity in his death. The RNA was similarly attacked that year. During their second annual convention in March 69, held at Reverend C.L. Franklin's New Bethel Church in Detroit, a police provocation sparked a siege that poured 800 rounds into the church. Several convention members were wounded. One policeman was killed, another wounded, and the entire convention, 140 people, was arrested en masse. When Revelyn Franklin, 
father of the Queen of Soul singer Aretha Franklin and Black State Representative James Del Rio were informed of the incident, they called the Black Judge George Crockett, who proceeded to the police station, where he found total legal chaos. Almost 150 people were being held incommunicado. They were being questioned, fingerprinted, and given nitrate tests to determine if they had fired guns in total disregard of fundamental constitutional procedures. Hours after the roundup, there wasn't so much as a list of persons being held, and no one had been formally arrested. An indignant Judge Crockett set up court right in the station house and demanded that the police either press charges or release their captives. He handled about 50 cases when the Wayne County prosecutor, called in by the police, intervened. The prosecutor promised that the use of all irregular methods would be halted. Crockett adjourned the impromptu court, and by noon the following day, the police had released all but a few individuals who were held on specific charges. Shaka Fuller, Rafael Vieira, and Alfred 2X Hibbets were charged with the killing. All three were subsequently tried and acquitted. Shaka Fuller was mysteriously assassinated a few months afterwards. Revolutionaries nationwide were attacked and or arrested. Tiari Uhuru, Maka, Ascufo, and the Smyrna brothers in Delaware, Jojo Muhammad Bowens, and Fred Burton in Philadelphia, and Panthers Mondo Langa, Ed Poindexter, and Veranza Daoud Bowers Jr. in Omaha. Police mounted an assault on the Panther office in the Desiree Projects of New Orleans, which resulted in several arrests. A similar attack was made on the People's Party office in Houston. One of their leaders, Carl Hampton, was killed by police, and another, Lee Otis Johnson, was arrested later on an unrelated charge and sentenced to 41 years in prison for alleged possession of one marijuana cigarette. The Rise of Prison Struggles Like the Panthers, most of those arrested brought their philosophies with them into the prisons. Likewise, most had outside support committees to one degree or another, so that this influx of political prisoners linked the struggle behind the walls with the struggles in the outside local communities. The combination set off a beehive of political activity behind the walls, and prisoners strapped up their struggle for political, African, Islamic, and academic studies, access to political literature, community access to prisons, an end to arbitrary punishments, access to attorneys, adequate law libraries, relevant vocational training, contact visits, better food, health care, housing, and a myriad of other struggles. The forms of prison struggle ranged from face-to-face -face negotiations to mass petitioning, letter writing, and call-in campaigns, outside demonstrations, class action lawsuits, hunger strikes, work strikes, rebellions, and more drastic actions. Overall, all forms of struggle served to roll back draconian prison policies that had stood for centuries and to further the development of the new African liberation struggle behind the walls. These struggles would not have been as successful or would have been much more costly in terms of lives lost or brutality endured had it not been for the links to the community and community support that political prisoners brought with them into the prisons. Although that support was not always sufficient in quantity or quality, or was sometimes non-existent, or came with hidden agendas, or was marked by frequent conflicts, on the whole, it was this combination of resolute prisoners, community support, and legal support, which was most often successful in, pris in prison. All right, the changing complexion of prisons. As the 60s drew to a close, new African and third world nationalities made up nearly 50% of the prison population. National liberation consciousness became the dominant influence behind the walls as the overall complexion neared the changeover from white to black, brown, and red. The decade-long general decrease in prisoners, particularly whites, brought a drop of between 16,000 and 28,000 in total prison population. The total number of white prisoners decreased from 16,000 and 23,000, while the total number of new African prisoners increased slightly or changed insignificantly, insignificantly over the same period. Yet, 
The next decade would begin the period of unprecedented new prison construction as the primary role of U.S. prisons changed from suppression of the working classes to suppression of domestic black and third world liberation struggles inside the U.S. The 70s. A California guard, rated as an expert marksman, opened the decade of the 70s with the January 13th shooting at close range of W.L. Nolan, Cleveland Edwards, and Alvin Jug Miller in the Soledad prison yard. They were left lying there where they fell until it was too late for them to be saved by medical treatment. Nolan, in particular, had been instrumental in organizing protests of killing of guard killings of two other black prisoners. Sorry, Nolan in particular had been instrumental in organizing protests of guards killings of two other black prisoners, Clarence Cowsey and William Powell at Soledad in the recent past and was consequently both a thorn in the side of the prison officials and a hero to the black prison population. When the guard was exonerated of the triple killings two weeks later by a board of inquiry, the prisoners retaliated by throwing a guard off the tier. George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and John Clichette were charged with the guard's death and came to be known as the Soledad Brothers. California black prisoners solidified around the chain of events in the Soledad Brothers case and formed the black guerrilla family, the BGF. The Panthers spearheaded a massive campaign to save the Soledad Brothers from the gas chamber. The nationwide coalescence of prisoners and support groups around the case converted the scattered, disparate prison struggles into a national prison movement. On the night of March 9, 1970, a bomb exploded, killing Ralph Featherstone and Che Payne in their car outside a Maryland courthouse where Rat Brown was to appear next day on inciting to riot charges. Instead of appearing, Rap went underground was captured a year later during the robbery of a Harlem so-called dope bar and was sent behind the walls. He completed his sentence and was released from prison. On August 7, 1970, Jonathan Jackson, younger brother of George, attempted to liberate Rochelle Sinkyu McGee, William Christmas, and James McLean from the Marin County Courthouse in Marin, um, in California. Jonathan, McLean, Christmas, and the trial judge were killed by SWAT teams who also wounded the prosecutor and paralyzed him for life. Miraculously, Rochelle and three wounded jurors survived the fusillade. Jonathan frequently served as Angela Davis's bodyguard. She had purchased weapons for that purpose, but Jonathan, Jonathan used those same weapons in the breakout attempt. Immediately afterward, she became the object of an international woman hunt. On October 13th, Angela was captured in New York City and was subsequently returned to California to undergo a very acrimonious trial with McGee. She was acquitted on all charges. McGee was tried separately and convicted on lesser charges. He remains imprisoned to date. And this, again, this was uh, published in, in 2019, here we are in 2022, and this is still the case with Rochelle Sinkyu McGee. Um, I believe he's in, been in prison um, almost 57 years now for um, charges uh, uh, that he was convicted of lesser charges, but not of the charge of um, what he's in prison for. On August 21st, a guard shot and killed George Jackson as he bolted from a control unit and ran for the San Quentin Wall. Inside the unit lay three guards and two trustees dead. The circumstances surrounding George Jackson's legendary life and death and the astuteness of his published writings left a legacy that inspires and instructs the new African liberation struggle on both sides of the wall even today and will for years to come. True again. September 13, 1971 became the bloodiest day in U.S. prison history when the New York's governor, Nelson Rockefeller, ordered the retaking of Attica Prison. The previous several years had seen a number of prison rebellions flare up across the country as prisoners protested widespread maltreatment and inhumane conditions. Most had been settled peaceably, with little or no loss of human life after face-to-face -face negotiations between prisoners and state and prison officials. At Attica, Black, 
brown, white, red, and yellow prisoners took over one block of the prison and stood together for five days seeking to negotiate an end to their inhumane conditions. Their now famous dictum declared, we are men, not beasts, and will not be driven as such. But Rockefeller had presidential ambitions. The rebelling prisoners' demands included a political request for asylum in a non-imperialistic country. Rockefeller's refusal to negotiate foreshadowed a macabre replay of his father John D.'s slaughter of striking Colorado miners and their families decades earlier. Altogether, 43 people died at Attica. New York State trooper bullets killed 39 people, 29 prisoners, and 10 guards in retaking Attica and shocked the world by the naked barbarity of the U.S. prison system. Yet the Attica Rebellion, too, remains a milestone in the development of the new African liberation struggle behind the walls and a symbol of the highest development of prisoner multinational solidarity to date. New World Clashes with the Nation of Islam in 1973, the simmering struggle for control of Newark's NOI, Nation of Islam, Temple No. 25, erupted into the open. Warren Marcello, a New World member, assassinated NOI Temple No. 25 Minister Shabazz. In retaliation, several NWI members were attacked and killed within the confines of the New Jersey prison system. And before the year was out, the bodies of Marcello and a companion were found beheaded in Newark's Weequaik Park. Ali Hassan, still in prison, was tried as one of the co-conspirators in the death of Shabazz and was found innocent. The Black Liberation Army COINTELPRO's destruction of the BPP forced many members underground and gave rise to the Black Liberation Army, BLA, a new African guerrilla organization. The BLA continued the struggle by waging urban guerrilla war across the U.S. through highly mobile strike teams. The government's intensified search for the BLA during the early 1970s resulted in the capture of Geronimo Jijaga in Dallas, Doruba bin Wahad and Jamal Josephs in New York, Shasha Brown and Blood McCreary in St. Louis, no Washington and Jalil Muntakim in Los Angeles, Herman Bell in New Orleans, Francisco and Gabriel Torres in New York, Russell Harum Schultz in Philadelphia, Chango Monges, Mark Holder and Kamal Hilton in New York, Asada Shakur and Sundiata Akoli in New Jersey, Ashanti Alston, Tariq and Walid in New Haven, Safia uh, Bukhari and Masai Gibson in Virginia and others. I just want to make a note here. I did say Russell Harum Schultz because this is the way it is um, uh, named here. Uh, we know Russell as M Russell Maroon Schultz. Uh, so perhaps his name uh, changed uh, since then. Just a quick note there. Left dead during the government's search and destroy missions were Sandra Pratt, wife of Geronimo Jijaga, assassinated while visibly pregnant, Mark Essex, Woody Changa Green, Twyman uh, Kakuyan Olubala Myers, Frank Heavy Fields, Anthony Kimu White, Zaid Shakur, Melvin Rima Kearney, Alfred Kambui Butler, Ron Carter, Rory Hythe, and John Thomas, among others. Red Adams, left paralyzed from the neck down by police bullets, would die from the effects a few years later. Other new African freedom fighters attacked, hounded, and captured during the same general era were Imari Obadele and the RNA-11 in Jackson, Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, Don Taylor and Damao Mau of Chicago, Hanif Shabazz, Abdul Aziz, and the VI-5 in the Virgin Islands, Mark Cook of the George Jackson Brigade in Seattle, Ahmed Obafemi of the RNA in Florida, Atiba Shana in Chicago, Mafundi Lake in Alabama, Sekou Kambui and Imani Harris in Alabama, Robert Aswad Duren in California, 
Kojo Bomani Sababu and Daruba Sinkyu in Trenton, John Partee and Tommy Lee Hodges of Al Kebulan in Memphis, Gary Tyler in Los Angeles, Kareem Saif Allah and the Five Percenter BLA Islamic Brothers in New York, Ben Chavez and the Wilmington Ten in North Carolina, Delbert Africa and MOVE members in Philadelphia, and others doubtless too numerous to name. All right, we are going to take a quick musical break with Mike Blankenship, Living for the Future, and then we will come back with the rest of A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle by Sundiata Akoli.
Just don't drop the stick. All right, if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco, and I am your host, Nube Brown. We are continuing the read of A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle um, by Sundiata Akoli. All right, we are now going to continue with Political Converts in Prison. We just got finished reading about the Black Liberation Army. Not everyone was political before incarceration. John Andaliwa Clark became so, and a freedom fighter par excellence only after being sent behind the walls. He paid the supreme sacrifice during a hail of gunfire from Trenton State Prison Guards. Huga Dahariki Pinel, Dahariki Pinel, also became political after being sent behind the California walls in 1964. He has been in prison ever since, but assassinated August 12, 2015, in New Folsom Prison shortly after his release from 46 years of solitary confinement, mostly in the notorious Pelican Bay shoe. Joan Little took an ice pick from a white North Carolina guard who had uh, used it to force her to form oral sex on him. She killed him, escaped to New York, was captured, and forced to return to the same North Carolina camp where she feared for her life. Massive public vigilance and support enabled her to complete the sentence in relatively safety, in relative safety and obtain her release. Desi Woods and Cheryl Todd, hitching through Georgia, were given a ride by a white man who tried to rape them. Woods took his gun, killed him, and was sent to prison, where officials drugged and brutalized her. Todd was also imprisoned and subsequently released upon completion of the sentence. Woods was denied parole several times, then finally released. Political or not, each arrest was met with highly sensationalized prejudicial publicity that continued unabated unabated to and throughout the trial. The negative publicity blitz was designed to guarantee a conviction, smokescreen the real issues involved, and justify immediate placement in the harshest prison conditions possible. For men, this usually means the federal penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. For women, it has meant the control unit in the federal penitentiary at Alderson, West Virginia, or Lexington, Kentucky. In 1988, Political prisoners Sylvia Baraldini, Alejandrina Torres, and Susan Rosenberg won a D.C. District Court lawsuit brought by attorneys um, Adoa Aliatoro, excuse me if I'm butchering these names, Jan Sussler, and others. The legal victory temporarily halted the practice of sending prisoners to control units strictly because of their political status. The ruling was reversed by the D.C. Appellate Court a year later. Those political prisoners not sent to Marion, Alderman, or Lexington control units are sent to other control units modeled after Marion, Lexington, but located within maximum security state prisons. Normally, this means 23 hours a day lockdown in long-term units located in remote hinterlands far from family, friends, and attorneys with heavy censorship and restrictions on communications, visits and outside contacts, combined with constant harassment, provocation, and brutality by prison guards. Effect of Captured Freedom Fighters on Prisons The influx of so many captured freedom fighters, i.e. prisoners of war, POWs, with varying degrees of guerrilla experience added a valuable dimension to the new African liberation struggle behind the walls. In the first place, it accelerated the prison struggles already in process, particularly the attack on control units. One attack was spearheaded by Michael Douche and Jeffrey Haas of the People's Law Office, Chicago, which challenged Marion's H-unit boxcar cells. Another was spearheaded by Asada Shakur and the Center for Constitutional Rights, which challenged her out-of-state placement in the Alderson, West Virginia control unit. Second, it stimulated a thoroughgoing investigation and exposure of Cointel's 
pros hand in waging low-intensity warfare on new African and third-world nationalities in the U.S. This was spearheaded by Geronimo Gijaga and Stuart Hanlon's law office in the West, and by Daruba bin Wahad with attorneys Liz Fink, Robert Boyle, and Jonathan Lubell in, in the East. These COINTELPRO investigations resulted in the overturn of bin Wahad uh, bin Wahad's conviction and his release from prison in March 1990 after he had been imprisoned 19 years for a crime he didn't commit. Typical. Third, it broadened the scope of the prison movement to the international arena by producing the initial presentation of the U.S. political prisoner and prisoner of war issue before the U.N.'s Human Rights Commission. This approach originated with Jalil Muntakim and was spearheaded by him and attorney Catherine Burke on the West Coast and by Sundiata Akoli and attorney Lennox Hines of the National Conference of Black Lawyers on the East Coast. This petition sought relief from human rights violations in U.S. prisons and subsequently asserted a colonized people's right to fight against alien domination and racist regimes as codified by the Geneva Convention. Fourth, it intensified, clarified, and broke new ground on political issues and debates of political concern to the new African community, such as the national question, spearheaded by Atiba Shana in the Midwest, all these struggles, plus those already in process, were carried out with the combination in one form or another of resolute prisoners with community and legal support. Community support, when present, came from various sources, family, comrades, friends, political, student, religious, and prisoner rights groups, workers, professionals, and progressive newspapers and radio stations. Some of those involved over the years were or are the National Committee for Defense of Political Prisoners, the Black Community News Service, the African People's Party, the Republic of New Africa, the African People's Socialist Party, the East, the Bliss Cord Communication Network, Liberation Bookstore, WDAS Radio Philadelphia, WBLS Radio New York, Radio New York, Third World Newsreel, Libertad, that's political journal of the Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican Movimiento de Liberación Nacional, MLN, the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, the May 19th Communist Organization, the Madame Bin Graphics Collective, uh, the Midnight Express, the Northwest Iowa Socialist Party, the National Black United Front, the Nation of Islam, Arm the Spirit, I believe where this uh, story first took place, Black News, International Class Labor Defense, the Real Dragon Project, the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee, the National Prison Project, the House of the Lord Church, the American Friends Service Committee, Attorneys Chuck Jones and Harold Ferguson of Rutgers Legal Clinic, the Jackson Advocate Newspaper, Rutgers Law Students, the Committee to End Marion Lockdown, the American Indian Movement, and others. All right, wow, okay, the end of the 70s. As the decade wound down, the late 70s saw the demise of the NOI, Nation of Islam following the death of Elijah Muhammad and the rise of Orthodox Islam among significant segments of new Africans on both sides of the wall. By 1979, the prison population stood at 300,000, a whopping 100,000 increase within a single decade. The previous 100,000 increase from 100,000 to 200,000 had taken 31 years from 1927 to 1958. The initial increase to 100,000 had taken hundreds of years since America's original colonial times. The 60s were the transition decade of white flight that saw a significant decrease in both prison population and white prisoners. And since the total black prison population increased only slightly or changed insignificantly over the decades of the insurgent 60s through 1973, it indicates that new Africans are imprisoned least when they fight hardest. The decade ended on a masterstroke by the BLA's multinational task force with the November 2, 1979 prison liberation of Asada Shakur. 
soul of the BLA and preeminent political prisoner of the era. The task force then whisked her away to the safety of political asylum in Cuba, where she remains to date. The Decade of the 80s. In June 1980, Ali Hassan was released after 16 years in the New Jersey State Prisons. Two months later, five New World of Islam NWI members were arrested after a North Brunswick, New Jersey bank robbery in a car with stolen plates. The car belonged to the recently released Ali Hassan, who had loaned it to a friend. Ali Hassan and 15 other NWI members refused to participate in the resulting mass trial which charged them in a racketeering-influenced corruption organization, RICO indictment, with conspiracy to rob banks for the purpose of financing various NWI enterprises in the furtherance of creating an independent black nation. All defendants were convicted and sent behind the walls. The 80s brought another round of BLA freedom fighters behind the walls. Bashir Hamid and Abdul Majid in 1980, Sekou Odinga, Balagoon, Chewy Ferguson L, Jamal Josephs again, um, Jamal Josephs, Mutulu Shakur, and numerous BLA multinational task force supporters in 1981, and Terry Khalid Long, Leroy Ohore Bunting, and others in 82. The government sweep left uh, Mityari Sundiata dead, Kuwazi Balagoon subsequently dead in prison from AIDS, and Sekou Odinga brutally tortured upon capture, torture that included pulling out his toenails and rupturing his pancreas during long sadistic beatings that left him hospitalized for six months. But this second round of captured BLA freedom fighters brought forth, perhaps for the first time, a battery of young, politically astute new African lawyers. Chokwe Lumumba, Jill Sophia Elijah, Inkechi Taifa, Adjoa Ayatoro, Ashanti Chimurenga, Michael Tarif Warren, and others. They are not only skilled in representing new African POWs, but the new African independence movement too, all of which added to the further development of the new African liberation struggle behind the walls. The decade also brought behind the walls Mumia Abu-Jamal, the widely respected Philadelphia radio announcer popularly known as the voice of the voiceless. He maintained a steady drumbeat of radio support for moved prisoners. While moonlighting as a taxi driver on the night of December 9, 1981, he discovered a policeman beating his younger brother. Mumia was shot and seriously wounded. The policeman was killed. Mumia now sits on death row in greatest need of mass support from every sector if he's to be saved from the state's electric tear chair. Uh, Mumia was resentenced to life without the possibility of parole in 2011 and now in severe ill health continues to fight for his freedom. Kazi Toure of the United Front of the United Freedom Front, the UFF, was sent behind the walls in 1982. He was released in 1981. The New York Eight, Coltrane Chimurenga, Viola Plummer, and her son Robert R.T. Taylor, Roger Wareham, Omawale Clay, Latifa Carter, Colette Peen, and Yvette Kelly were arrested on October 17, 1984, and charged with conspiring to commit prison breakouts and armed robberies and to possess weapons and explosives. However, the New York Eight were actually the New York Eight Plus because another eight or nine prisons, uh, persons were jailed as grand jury resistors in connection with the case. The New York Eight were acquitted on August 5, 1985. That same year, Ramona Africa joined other MOVE comrades already behind the walls. Her only crime was that she survived Philadelphia Mayor Goody's May 13, 1985 bombing, which uh, cremated 11 MOVE members, including their babies, families, home, and neighborhood. The following year, November 19, 1986, a 20-year-old Bronx, New York youth, Larry Davis, now Adam, Adam Abdul-Hakim, would make a dramatic escape during a shootout with police who had come to assassinate him for absconding with their drug sales money. 
several policemen were wounded in the shootout. Adam escaped unscathed, but surrendered weeks later in the presence of the media, his family, and a mass of neighborhood supporters. After numerous charges, trials, and acquittals, in which he exposed the existence of a New York police-controlled drug ring that coerced black and Puerto Rican youths to push police-supplied drugs, he was sent behind the walls on weapons possession convictions. Since incarceration, numerous beatings by guards have paralyzed him from the waist down and confined him to a wheelchair. On July 16, 1987, Abdul Haq Muhammad, Arthur Majid Barnes, and Robert R.T. Taylor, all members of the Black Men's Movement Against Crack, were pulled over by state troopers in upstate New York, arrested, and subsequently sent to prison on a variety of weapons possession convictions. I just need to stop here for a second. If you notice that almost on every single one of these, it ends with a sent to prison on a variety of weapon possession convictions. I hope you're seeing uh, uh, other themes here throughout why people are being captured and caged. Um, and I also want to point out that, thankfully, um, Sekou Odinga is, um, is out here in the, quote, free world. Herman Ferguson, at 68 years old, voluntarily returned to the U.S. on April 6, 1989, after 20 years in exile in Ghana, Africa, and Guyana, South America. He had fled the U.S. during the late 60s after the appeal was denied on his sentence of three and a half to seven years following a conviction for conspiring to murder civil rights leaders. Upon return, he was arrested at the airport and was moved constantly from prison to prison for several years as a form of harassment. The 80s brought the Reagan era's rollback of progressive trends on a wide front and a steep rise in racist incidents while vigilantism and police murder of new African and third world people. It also brought the rebirth and reestablishment of the NOI, a number of new African POWs adopting Orthodox Islam in lieu of revolutionary nationalism, and the emergence of the New African People's Organization, NAIPO, and its chairman, Chokwe Lumumba. From the RNA, the Republic of New Africa, as banner carrier for the New African Independence Movement, NAIM, the NAIM, the New Orleans assassination of Lumumba Shakur of the Panther 21, and an upsurge in mass political demonstrations known as the Days of Outrage in New York City, spearheaded by the December 12th movement and others. The end of the decade brought the death of Huey P. Newton, founder of of the Black Panther Party, allegedly killed by a young black guerrilla family adherent on August 22, 1989, during a dispute over crack. Huey taught the black masses socialism and popularized it through the slogan, Power to the People. He armed the black struggle and popularized it through the slogan, Political Power Grows Out of the Barrel of a Gun. For that, and despite his human shortcomings, he was a true giant of the black struggle, because his particular contribution is comparable to that of other modern-day giants, Marcus Garvey, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. AIDS, crack, street crime, gang violence, homelessness, and arrest rates have all exploded throughout the black colonies. The prison population on June 30, 1989, topped 673,000, an incredible 372,000 increase in less than a decade, causing the tripling and doubling of prison populations in 34 states and sizable increases in most others. New York City prisons became so overcrowded they began using ships as jails. Former U.S. Secretary of Education and so-called drug czar William Bennett announced plans to convert closed military bases into concentration camps. The prison building spree and escalated prison imprisonment rates continued unabated. The new prisoners are younger, more volatile, 
have long prison sentences and are overwhelmingly of new African and third world nationalities. It is estimated that by the year 1994, the U.S. will have more than one million prisoners. Um, 1,053,738, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Projections suggest that over 75% of them will be black and other people of color. I do want to say that, yeah, we actually reached over 2 million. More are women than previously. Their percentage rose to 5% in 1980 from a low of 3% in 1970. Whites are arrested at about the same rate as in Western European, in Western Europe, while the new African arrest rate has surpassed that of blacks in South Africa. In fact, the U.S. black imprisonment rate is now the highest in the world. Ten times as many blacks as whites are incarcerated per 100,000 population. The 90s and beyond. As we begin to move through the 90s, the new African liberation struggle behind the walls finds itself coalescing around campaigns to free political prisoners and prisoners of war, helping to build a national a PPPOW organization, strengthening its links on the domestic front and building solidarity in the international arena. Although the established media concentrates on the sensationalism of ghetto crack epidemic, street crime, drive-by shootings, and gang violence, there has been a long, quiet period of consciousness raising in the new African colonies by the committed independence forces. This heightened consciousness of the colonies is just beginning to manifest itself through seemingly random sparks and the rise of innovative cultural trends, i.e., rap and hip-hop, message music, culturally designed hairstyles, dissemination of political and cultural video cassettes, re-sprouting of insurgent periodicals, and the resurrection of forgotten heroes, all of which presage an oppressed people getting ready to push forward again. The new African liberation struggle behind the walls now follows the laws of its own development, paid for in its own blood, intrinsically linked to the struggle of its own people and rooted deep in the ebb and flow of its own history. To know that history is already to know its future development and direction. Sundiata Akoli. Um, and then there's an about Sundiata Akoli. This note about Sundiata was published in the 90s with his brief history by, um, by Arm the Spirit. And, he's, and there's a beautiful picture here with him, uh, of him with Walida Amarisha of the Sundiata Akoli Freedom Campaign. Mind you, this is written in 1995. Uh, we are published, we had published it in the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper in, in 2019. Sundiata, an ex-Black Panther, has been in prison since 1973. And also I want to make note for those of you who have just tuned in, uh, Sundiata Akoli is now home. Uh, at 85 years old and almost 50 years in prison. Um, has been in prison since 1973 when traveling the New Jersey Turnpike with two companions, Asada Shakur and Zaid Shakur, his car was ambushed by state troopers. During the shooting, Zaid was killed, a state trooper was killed, and Asada and Sundiata were wounded, captured, and sentenced to life in prison. After 21 years of imprisonment in the nation's harshest penitentiaries, uh, Trenton State Prison, USP Marion, Illinois, and USP Leavenworth, Kansas, and with an exemplary prison record, Sundiata came up for parole in 1994. He was not permitted to appear before the New Jersey Parole Board in person, but was only allowed to participate from USP Leavenworth via telephone without an attorney present. After a 20-minute telephone hearing, Sundiata was denied parole and given a 20-year hit meaning he must do 20 more years become, before coming up for parole again. For, his 2019 pub, for this 2019 publication in the San Francisco Bayview, Sundiata wrote this note. Sundiata Akoli is a former Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army political prisoner of war. In his 46th year of imprisonment for fighting for the liberation of new African and other oppressed people, he wrote this brief history of the new African prison struggle at the request of the late great Chokwe Lumumba, chairman of the New African People's Organization and erstwhile mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. 
Sundiata hopes its readers will find this history enlightening, enjoyable, and useful in gaining freedom for new Africans and other oppressed peoples, as well as freedom for himself and all other political prisoners and prisoners of war. Free Sundiata Akoli and all political prisoners and POWs. Free them all. And then I want to leave you lastly with a caption. And the captions and photos are usually provided by um, the editors. So um, this is, there's a banner here, Stop the Frame Up of the Black Panthers, Youth Against War and Fascism. And this is the caption. When the great mathematician and humanitarian Sundiata Akoli is still in prison at the age of 82, still living his principles every day, ministering to the needs for education and encouragement of young comrades behind enemy lines. It's time for the youth to stand up, as these youth did 50 years ago. We have unfinished business. All right, again, that is the end of A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle by Sundiata Akoli, written in 1995, published in 2019 in the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper, where you can uh, read it there. And Sundiata Akoli, at age 85, almost 50 years in prison, has come home. I'm going to leave you with two poems, one from Jalil Muntakim, author of First, veteran Black uh, Liberation Army uh, member and Black Panther uh, for self-defense member, as well as political prisoner who is now home, Jalil Muntakim's book, We Are Our Own Liberators, and a, story, um, a poem by uh, Filiberto Ojeda Rios. First, a Black Panther song. Have you ever stood in the darkness of night, screaming silently, you're a man? Have you ever hoped that a time would come when our voice could be heard in the noonday sun? Have you waited so long till your unheard song has stripped away your very soul? Well then, believe it, my friends, that the silence will end. We'll just have to get guns and be men. Long live the panther spirit of Nell Washington. Albert Nell Washington passed away on April 28, 2000, at the age of 59. Filiberto's Song my machete is adorned, draped in red and green, sharpened with the blood of a patriot whose life beckons. Viejo, I hear you from a distant land. Your words of liberation, freedom, and independence cuts the wind of tyranny, the howling, ravishing wolves of the U.S. neocolonialism and exploitation. The ancestors speak through you on this 137th anniversary of El Grito de Lares, telling our youth now is the time to restore and rebuild our nation. Their echoes reverberates into chords of African drums, their coqui rhythms with the sweetness of coquitos. Libertad, 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 libertad. We will not forgive or forget. We will heed the call. We will champion the patriots. We will free our nation. For our machetes are adorned, draped in red and green, sharpened with the blood of a patriot whose life beckons. The Puerto Rican independista leader, Filiberto Ojeda Rios was assassinated on September 23, 2005 by FBI snipers provoking outrage and protest across Puerto Rico. That is our show. Hope you have a great week. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer. Peace and all power to the people.